Uh, good afternoon and uh, welcome to today's roundtable. Thanks to everyone for being here and for uh, logging on. I want to thank the people who uh, traveled, uh, some across the continent and others across uh, an ocean to be here. We really appreciate this. Uh, and we intentionally configured this conversation as a roundtable to be a conversation and not to do the five-minute rounds thing where we take four minutes asking a question and then you run out of time trying to answer the one question we get to. We want to really talk to you. Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation primarily about uh, native priorities for the farm bill. Um, I want to go over some housekeeping uh, uh, matters. If you are participating remotely, members will be able to see you on WebEx and call on you. Just be sure to raise your hand so we can recognize you and make sure you're on the monitor for uh, everyone to see. And I also ask, obviously, uh, that you mute yourself until you are recognized. I encourage all panelists, both in person and online, to raise your hand to be recognized if you want to add a comment or respond to a question, even if it's not directed to you. Um, finally, please just introduce yourself um, as you start to speak so that our court reporter um, accurately picks up who is speaking. And now uh, for introductions. I'll start with Mahina Paishon Duarte, uh, co-founder of Aina Aloha Economic Futures. I also see that Paula Daniels and David Price uh, have traveled from Hawaii to be with us today. Aloha and uh, welcome to you all. Um, I want to uh, defer to um, the vice chair to introduce her guest. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, <clears throat> we were to have Richard uh, Charlie Ish Peterson, who is the Central Council uh, President of Clinkett and Haida Indian Tribes of Alaska, but instead uh, we will have our General Counsel uh, at Central Council Clinkett Haida Indian Tribes, Madeline Soboloff Levy. Uh, Madeline is uh, is has been with Central Council for a period of time, and uh, we're pleased to have her before the committee as well. I think I'm going to check with staff here. Should I introduce the rest of them? It looks like the members to introduce the I'll other panelists not are not here. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and do that, and they can they can make their introductions uh, later if, uh, if that's appropriate. Um, we'd like to welcome Kelsey Scott, the Director of Programs at the Intertribal Agriculture uh, Council in uh, Gettys Gettysburg, uh, South Dakota. Uh, Dustin Schmidt, producer of the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, White River, uh, South Dakota, in person. Thank you. Um, Vincent Cowboy, the marketing director of the Navajo Agricultural Products Industry in Farmington, New Mexico. Uh, Trent Kissy, director of the Agriculture and Natural Resource for Muscogee Creek Nation, Claremore, Oklahoma. Uh, Ryan Langford, uh, uh, the chairman of the Montana FSA Committee and Island Mountain Development Group of Chinook. Uh, Montana, and Mary Green Trottier. Did I pronounce that properly? Well, no. How do I do it? Trottier. Well, that's not good enough. Trottier, uh, the, the president of the National Association of Food Distribution Programs on Indian Reservations, uh, Fort Trotton, uh, North Dakota. Uh, turning to today's uh, discussion, every five years, Congress reauthorizes a farm bill. Uh, this legislation has far-reaching and multi-year impacts on communities across our country, but it wasn't until the last farm bill in 2018 that tribes and native communities had a meaningful seat at the table. This partnership resulted in 63 tribal-specific provisions in the final bill, from new market opportunities for native producers to expanding tribal self-determination 
and self-governance authorities, leading to the Native Farm Bill Coalition, uh, leading to the Native Farm Bill Coalition, describing the bill as the most inclusive farm bill ever. In short, the 2018 Farm Bill broke barriers, but more work needs to be done. The next Farm Bill is another opportunity for us to collaborate and build on incredible progress and to further advance federal agricultural policy that includes Native priorities. I'm particularly interested in the panel's input in three areas, climate impacts on Native farmers, producers, and consumers, expanding the 638 contracting and compacting, uh, and supporting indigenous food systems and nutrition. Uh, before we begin our discussion, I'd like to recognize the Vice Chair for any opening thoughts she may have. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I will be brief because I, I do want to hear a, a good discussion from, from our panelists today. As you mentioned, the, uh, the Farm Bill is, is our opportunity here in Congress to, to set national agricultural, nutritional, conservation, forestry policy every five years. And so we are back at it again. Um, I'm not on the Ag Committee, but I've been working on my own Arctic Ag. As I'm looking to my friends from Hawaii, you may think that that's a, a little bit different. But no, it's, it's about how we deal with islanded places, as we are in Alaska and as you are in, in Hawaii, and how we can make uh, these federal policies work for all uh, across the country. As you noted, Mr. Chairman, um, the Farm Bill in 2018 was a significant win for tribal communities and uh, certainly the opportunity to expand the Tribal 638 um, provisions to food distribution projects and, 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 and projects under Forest Service Tribal Forest Protection Act uh, was significant. We had an opportunity just this morning to hear from the Chief of the Forest Service uh, a little bit further about uh, that 638 contracting program and what more we might need to do to make sure that, that it works uh, better um, and, uh, and, and what we need to do in this upcoming farm bill. I hope that today's discussion uh, will also cover how tribes can exercise greater food sovereignty, uh, to choose what types of food are incorporated in youth and elders feeding programs, how the application of traditional eco ecological knowledge can better guide land management, and what more we can do to unleash the economic opportunity that, that tribal agriculture presents. Um, we do have a, a great group of panelists here today, and um, looking forward to the comments that each of you will share. And again, I would just underscore, Mr. Chairman, uh, discussion on expanding the 638 authorities at USDA and how federal contracting and procurement at USDA can further support tribal economic self-sufficiency. And I'm certainly hopeful that Maddie uh, Soboloff-Levy will be able to speak to that um, when she is able to present. So looking forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. I'll start with a quick question for Ms. Duarte. Uh, despite centuries of successful land stewardship and resource management, indigenous conservation practices are not incorporated into USDA's conservation practice standards. What do we do to fix that? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Ms. Vice Chairman, committee members, and to the tribal leaders here that are represented today. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Um, one of the most important things that we could do for Native Hawaiian producers would be to uh, establish, to build upon the success that actually our Alaskan cousins have demonstrated. You know, Alaska Federal, uh, Alaska Federal 
Federation of Natives, uh, they responded very strongly and significantly during COVID-19 and set up an entire system for which they created a navigator uh, role to really help Native peoples, communities, organizations, nonprofits to understand the federal uh, funding and resource opportunities that are available to work with Native uh, uh, organizations and tribes to apply for these monies and then provide additional wraparound supports to make sure that they are accounting for the federal funding and executing on the stated goals. It's an important um, uh, gap that needs to be addressed, and we've heard this across all the major islands. Thank you very much. Vice Chair Murkowski, do you have any questions? Yeah, I, I, I do, and, and I, I keep mentioning the 638 uh, program, but to give colleagues a little bit of an example, um, when, when you think about different ways that we incorporate traditional foods into to some of the feeding programs, in, in Alaska, uh, the Alaska Naval Tribal Health Consortium, the ANTHC, was able to re replace non-Alaskan items like catfish. Catfish was part of the, of, the, of the food programs that were offered. Well, we don't have catfish in Alaska. Um, but what ANTHC was able to do was replace catfish with halibut and cod in, in their uh, FIDIPR food packages. So for them, this whole idea of local control made absolute sense. So this is a question that I would pose to, to, to Madeline uh, Soboloff-Levy, um, as well as you, Ms. Trottier. Um, just share with us the, the, the ways that we can um, allow for greater self-determination over how food is procured and processed for the community feeding programs and, and, and then what it means to tribal producers and, and tribal economies if 638 uh, authorities were fully expanded to USDA nutrition programs like, like you have within uh, the FIDEP program. So to, to miss uh, Levy in to, to you as well here on the panel. So we'll turn to, to Maddie first. Thank you, uh, Senator Markowski, and, uh, and thank you all. Uh, my name is Madeline Sobolev-Levy, and I'm the general counsel for Clinkett and Haida. Uh, President Peter sends his deepest uh, President Peterson sends his deepest regrets that he was um, unexpectedly unavailable today uh, and away with illness. Clinkett uh, and Haida is a federally recognized tribe with over 35,000 citizens worldwide. Uh, the tribe serves, serves 19 communities and villages that are spread across 43,000 square miles within Southeast Alaska. And there are recognized communities in Washington State and California as well. Um, so thank you very much for the opportunity to join you today. Um, and. Uh, and for Clinkett and Haida, uh, the tribe has been um, uh, uh, the tribe has been really looking forward to the farm bill reauthorization and the uh, the expansion, the FDIPR, um program. Um, uh, uh, the tribe, excuse me, uh, just a moment. I lost myself. <clears throat> uh, so. 
Clink and Haida has been able to uh, start to operate greenhouses um, and has purchased a commercial food processing facility where the tribe is able to uh, process traditional foods such as seal, um, uh, the halibut that Senator mentioned, um, other fish products, um, moose, deer, um, and foods that Clinkett & Haida uh, strongly believes are important not only for food security, but also for the spiritual and emotional uh, and physical well-being of our, of our communities. Um, and also, as, as the Senator mentioned, processing uh, through these facilities allows the tribe to prioritize the provision of these foods to, uh, to its Head Start facilities, to its youth programs, um, and to elders, um, and provide them on a regular basis. Um, the tribe has also been able to uh, do this through its catering business, um, and, uh, and uh, the tribe uh, would be really, really grateful to see the expansion of uh, 638, uh, 638 authorities. Senator Danes, uh, oh, sorry, Ms. Trottier, then, and then Senator Danes. Can you hear me now? Okay, there you go. Thank you for, again, for um, allowing us to be part of this roundtable and for listening to the, to the issues that um, are, are revolving around, especially the 638 and the upcoming Farm Bill. Um, we're very grateful for the provisions that were included. And the 638 is a success story that has um, elevated eight tribes and a partnership for allowing fresh, locally sourced, foods that are um, consumed by tribal members and other members or other people that um, live on our reservations to access the, the food. And, and it's, it's been a push for Napa Dipper to um, include traditionally sourced foods um, within the food package. The 638 allows that it to enhance it. It also eliminates transportation. It offers a fresher source of food for our community members who also suffer from high rates of diabetes and heart disease and hunger. It's, it's real in our communities. And by having the 638 expansion um, across Fadipper, it would really escalate local producers to have that steady stream and plan ahead and um, a source of revenue and income and, and pride for our community members. Chairman Shaws, thank you. And Mr. Langford, thanks for making the long trek from Chinook, Montana. Uh, and coming all the way from the High Line, which is, you talk about the, the Arctic part of our country. We have some of that up in northern Montana too, Lisa. Um, anyway, uh, as we discussed two weeks ago when we had a hearing on priorities, the Farm Bill has a chance to fix some outstanding issues that are making it hard for tribal members and communities to participate and then take full advantage of these ag programs. I've heard time and time again traveling around Montana that agencies federal agencies can make it difficult and prohibitive for some tribal communities to participate in the Farm Bill programs. 
The FSA and BIA play a crucial role, certainly in helping ag. You know all about FSA, uh, but they play a really important role in, in our um, tribal communities. But I have heard that BIA has been an obstacle. It's hindering farmer participation. So from where you sit, they're up in the high line of Montana, in your experience, how has the BIA's actions influenced producers on Montana's reservations, and what do we need to do to fix this systemic problem? Thank you, Senator, and, and, and again, thank you for letting all of us be here as, as a voice from native, from native countries. Um, what I want to address is, is exactly that, is, is how and what is out there as, as obstacles. Um, we as natives, when we talked about some of the key points that you brought up, um, Chairman, were climate smart activities. Um, when we step back and we look at how these are actually going to be implemented, how do we get boots on the ground to do this? Um, we look at what's in front of us. What are the obstacles in front of us? And one of the big obstacles um, is the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Um, when we step back and we look at how we as natives have generational since time immemorial been stewards of this land from coast to coast, and, and now we're confined to reservations, to quote unquote Indian land. Um, even in this definition of Indian land, there is no definition in the Farm Bill. I'd encourage you to create a strong definition of Indian land and what it means. Part of the reason, I think, Senator Daines, that we have such a hard time dealing with the BIA is they act as though it's their land. The Bureau of Indian Affairs acts as it's their land. It's not. They're holding it in trust for me. I own my land. I own my land on a reservation. My nation owns their own land. It's just held in trust. You know, and, and dealing with that Bureau of Indian Affairs, there is a lot of government oversight there. And when we have to, for example, if we want to engage in an equip contract, the Bureau of Indian Affairs will offer us a lease that's restrictive on time and practices. Um, we need to be able to allow some streamlining and not have multiple agencies oversee us when we go through these practices. The government oversight is great to an extent, but it's repetitive and overreaching in a lot of cases. You know, this, this is an issue, especially to get stuff done in Indian country. Speaking outside with some of, the, some of the panelists here, my thoughts and my experiences were echoed. You know, um, talking to Mr. Trent outside, same exact issues with the BIA. You know, one of the things I have written down is that some of the BIA actions um, are really non-actions. For example, if we back up to the last farm bill, um, I could enroll in ARC PLC, our program. And if the BIA took seven years to develop a lease, I could go back and get my lease and apply for those payments. Right now, systemically, the system is rigged so that these programs are closing. They have a closed date where I have to produce my lease. That lease is produced by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. If the Bureau of Indian Affairs doesn't produce that lease, I don't get a payment. Systemically, I'm being excluded because a, another government agency is excluding me. You know, I think Senator Daines, that kind of alludes to some of the major obstacles I see. Great. Mr. Langford, thanks for sharing that testimony. That's exactly what we're looking for here. If you're speaking directly to senators here, we want to hear it from, from the, uh, the ground there. So thank you. Chairman before, before I move on to um, Senator Smith, I just want to 
clarify the purpose and put a really fine point on it. And I, I talked to Mahina about this a couple of hours ago. We need propose, concrete proposals, ledge text by March 31st to submit to the Agriculture Committee and to the Look, I don't expect that we're going to achieve a consensus even on the committee, right. on the Indian Affairs Committee, but to the extent that we can be rhyming with each other and then over time consolidating our position so that there's one bipartisan Indian Affairs point of view as it relates to the Farm Bill, then we have the best possible chance to enact all the changes that we want. Senator Smith. Well said. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you organizing this hearing, uh, Senator Schatz and uh, Vice Chair. Um, I have so many questions, but I'm going to just jump right in. Um, I, there are, first of all, let me say there are, I think, three of us who serve on Senate Indian Affairs and also on agriculture, me along with Senator Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico and also John Hoven from uh, North Dakota. And so um, I think that that will be a good, uh, uh, Chair Schatz, that will be a good kind of linkage that we can provide between the two committees as we work on what needs to be really strong provisions for um, native farming in the, um, in the upcoming farm bill. Um, I want to ask a question. This gets a little bit, I think, following on what Senator Daines was asking about, which is um, issues of access to risk management tools, federal risk management tools for native farmers and ranchers. And um, we know, I think, that we have not seen, uh, there hasn't been a capacity for high participation. I su suspect, uh, Mr. Langford, that some of the things that you just described for BIA also hold true for some of the challenges around risk management. Um, but um, we also have, you know, if land is, again, if land is in trust, um, how do you get the access to credit when the typical way of getting access to credit for farm um, credit programs is your land? And so my question really to all of you is could you talk about some of those unique challenges for accessing um, risk management tools in the farm programs and if you have any specific suggestions or proposals for what we need to do differently and better? You know, I guess since I have the mic warmed up, um, is this still on? So I'm a producer. Um, I, I happen to sit as a state chairman FSA, but I'm here as a producer. Um, and my livelihood depends on our land. The hard part with credit, when we talk about credit, is, um, is how do we access it? That's what you're asking. Right. Um, and, and it's almost impossible to access. You know, when we talk about, and I'm sure you guys have had other farmers come in here and talk about their fifth generation farmers. They've been on their ranch for 100 years. You know, when I step back and I look at my family, you know, two generations ago, my grandmother was allotted land. So that's two, two generations ago, she was allotted land. A generation ago, my father came back underneath the Indian Finance Act and tried to borrow money at our local bank and was denied. So I'm really the first generation that is getting access to capital and my access is very limited. I go into a bank and they can't collateralize what I have on the reservation. They can't collateralize my land. And in fact, they can't even collateralize my equipment. So what they can collateralize is my insurance. And that's a great tool for all Indians. Mm -hmm. We need to bolster that and we need to help that level. We need to increase the subsidy amount that we can have on RMA. You know, some of the things that I look at is um, for the crop, crop insurance subsidies, um, the Senate authorized in section one, 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 I think there's five ones there. Um, <laughs> They accessed um, 
they authorize a 90% subsidy share. I suggest that we look at that for all RME because it literally is the only way I can borrow money. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I know there's a red line that goes around our reservation. You know, I've reached out and had direct conversations with Chopra from the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau. You know, we've talked about that. But that still, line still exists. I think it is crucial and critical that we put a good safety net that we as Native Americans can borrow because we can't collateralize our equipment, we can't collateralize our land, and it really leads us into, into a thing. So that's, that's one of the points that I'd like to is, is to increase that subsidy for Native Americans mm -hmm. on Indian land. Senator, may I, may I add as yes. well? Okay, so from Hawaii, Native Hawaiian, so um, thank you to the good work of 2018 uh, Farm Bill and to the Native Farm Bill Coalition. We really, advocate, we really support their work and their ideas around um, expansion of crop insurance to Native crops and Native producers. So oftentimes we are placing special emphasis on the major commodity crops, rightfully so, but we can expand this yep, I agree. to Native crops mm -hmm. and food not only as, um, you know, food for meals, but food as medicine, mm -hmm. food for education, and so forth, and all the other uses. Uh, another thing is to, you know, building on my, my earlier point where we, you know, we want to build off the good success of AFN is if we get more technical support um, for regional navigators, right, not just, we're not just advocating for Native coins, but all Native peoples, then we can start to hedge the risk, right, so we can also provide additional technical assistance for, to, uh, to help farmers become loan-ready, loan help them expand on business models and businesses that can be expanded upon and scaled, um, helping with marketing and mm -hmm. so forth. Mm -hmm. That's great. Chair Schatz, could I just ask if um, Ms. Scott, who is with us virtually with, and uh, is Director of Programs with the Intertribal Agriculture Council, if you'd like to add anything. I know you all have worked Absolutely. on this. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to, to join in today. Um, it, it's a privilege and an honor. I'm here as the Director of Programs for the Intertribal Agriculture Council. Also, uh, we representing or standing in for Vice Chair Cole Miller of the Shakopee Mdewakanton Sioux Community, who is a co-chair of the Native Farm Bill Coalition, which the Intertribal Agriculture Council stewards. I want to really highlight one point um, before I speak specifically to risk uh, mitigation efforts in Indian country. And it's, we need to be very careful in our language use. It's not that trust land can't be collateralized. It's that mm -hmm. banks won't collateralize mm -hmm. trust lands. CDFIs are doing a great job <laughs> at working with Indian country to recognize um, that it's just a different structure of um, approaching extending capital and understanding the asset a little bit differently. Specific to risk uh, mitigation efforts in Indian country, in the, towards the end of 2022, the risk management agency at USDA partnered with the IAC to expand outreach on crop insurance. And this really is a tremendous opportunity um, of a partnership to uplift because what we're gonna be doing through this partnership is recognizing that there is a void in training, credentialing, and um, offering of uh, risk mitigation tools 
in Indian country that are specifically informed by the knowledge and the needs from within the community. So through our efforts with this cooperative agreement, we're going to be working on a pipeline of crop insurance agents and adjusters that are rooted right there within our communities mm -hmm. that can be doing an even better job of enhancing and outreaching about risk mitigation opportunities. Um, and I think that we should really appreciate any efforts extended towards um, a recognition for more tribally owned and operated insurance companies being uh, viewed as a key partner and collaborator in identifying a uh, very specific opportunity that can exist in addressing some of the risk that is not presently covered by federal crop insurance programs. Thank you, and I appreciate your clarification on this native CDFIs versus banks. It's a really good point, and actually Senator Rounds and I have done some work on this um, in Banking Housing Committee, so I appreciate that. On that note, Senator Rounds. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and uh, first of all, I want to just thank our panelists for taking the time today to attend the hearing. Uh, either in person or if they have to from the colder parts of our country where they're still getting snow uh, to, to do this virtually. Uh, I, I'm happy to introduce two of our panelists uh, from the state of South Dakota here with us today. Kelsey Scott is an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe and currently serves as the Director of Programs for the Intertribal Agricultural Council. You just heard from her to begin with. She is the owner of a grass-fed beef operation on the Cheyenne River Sioux Indian Reservation where she ranches with her husband and family. Prior to working as the Director of Programs at the Intertribal Agricultural Council, she served as Youth Programs Coordinator and Natural Resources Director for the Council. Also, I'd like to introduce Mr. Dustin Schmidt of White River, South Dakota. Mr. Schmidt currently works and resides on the Rosebud Indian Reservation with his four sons. Before managing his own ranch, Dustin worked on the Duck Bar Ranch in Nebraska for three years, then moved back to White River where he worked for Jensen Cattle Corporation for 10 years. Since then, he has managed his own ranch, which he started while utilizing the FSA loan program. For the last 20 years, Dustin has remained involved in his community and volunteered as a 4-H leader. I'd just like to personally thank both Dustin and Kelsey for taking the time to provide their perspective to the panel today. and. Uh, it's always interesting to hear the perspective of what happens on, in Indian country with regard to credit, the availability of credit, and uh, perhaps some things that we can do to provide additional credit in the future. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Rounds. My understanding is, uh, Mr. Schmidt, you may have something to add on risk mitigation uh, for the panel. I'd maybe just add, uh, I, I appreciate this and, and a chance to talk. Uh, one of the things is sometimes it, I think gets misconveyed as FSA. We're not here to bash anything. I'm not trying to do that by any means. I'm just here to try to help. But uh, like the PRF and the RMAs and those things you asked, like there isn't very much, very many people that enroll in it. It's too expensive. And there's too much risk for us as a producer. I'm just going to use this for an example. But the PRF, a lot of it goes back to a 17-mile grid when you get rainfall. Uh, I'm sorry, but I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense to me to enroll my land into this program and take a chance of making my living just on that risk when you have, uh, it's hard to, it's going to go back to drought monitor issues and that's, that's a huge problem right now. That's, we're in a two-year drought. Um, the drought monitor is broken. I'll give you that right now. Like we, we've been in a severe drought for two years and I haven't had any 
according to our drought monitor, it says zero. You know, I mean, we're fine according to the counties that we're coming from. And we got Hawk and Jackson, Let, Bennett counties in severe drought, and the drought monitor says we're fine. So if you want any of these programs like ECP, LFP, PRF, any of them to work, the drought monitor's got to be fixed from day, day one. So, and in order to enroll into those programs, we got to get that fixed before we'll go to that part of it. I mean, that's what I'm going to look at. Sorry. Thank you. Well. Senator Cortez Masto. Thank you. Thank you for that information. I think that's so important. Let me talk um, a little bit about nutrition um, uh, for, the, for the moment. And, and uh, is it Ms. Trottier? Thank you. I'm going to ask you this question. In Nevada, I'm from the state of Nevada. Many of our tribal communities literally have to drive sometimes 50 to 100 miles just to get uh, access to uh, grocery stores and shopping. Um, and so uh, my question, I guess, for you is, can you address um, uh, not only the healthy impact, but the positive economic correlation, correlation between Indian country participation in food nutri nutrition programs and a healthy lifestyle? Um, and, and what I mean by that is, and please address it through not only just the um, FDPIR, but other programs like SNAP um, that are focused for some of our tribes as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? And has it been effective or not? And what should we be thinking about when those programs are out there uh, and their effectiveness? Well, I, I personally operate a food distribution program. Our SNAP offices are co-located in the same building. I think we're one of none. We're the only one in, the, in, in Indian country that has that uh, resource. We also have a fully functional nutrition education center. So we provide a lot of nutrition education to our community and our clients. And I think the, the nutrition ed benefit that FDIPR recipients receive, they, they see us every month. They, they might see us two, three times a month. We have shopping centers in, in many food distribution centers that they're allowed to come back multiple times. So they, get, they have the, the resource to um, access fresh, fresh produce. And the 638 is also another um, benefit, as um, Senator Murkowski mentioned, the availability of traditional foods that community members are, are recognizing um, as you know, his, their historical foods that they've um, enjoyed throughout their lifetime. And they, they may have limited access if you're on a fixed income uh, you're not able to go out and hunt and fish. Your program can provide that for you. Um, the other program that we operate is the Senior Farmers Market. That allows us to procure traditionally grown fruits and vegetables and also offers an economic resource for community members who have gardening. And we, we show them how to uh, preserve foods, can foods, so they have extra resources to make it through, as Senator Rounds said earlier, those brutal winters. And so every bit of food security we can, we can muster for our communities, it's, it's really important. You, you, act, you mentioned the lack of fresh uh, or lack of access to grocery stores. I know North Dakota, South Dakota, 50 miles, is it, there's a lot greater distances to, to resources in those communities. And if you don't have adequate transportation, um, you might not have a functioning vehicle. That restriction is there and those barriers are there. Mm -hmm. What was the lessons learned from the pandemic? Food security is more yeah. important than ever for tri tribal communities. Mm -hmm. um, it, it really heightened the need for gardening 
and preserving foods and saving those resources. Um, thankfully, we were able to um, reach out to the community, provide those um, necessary resources through delivery mechanisms. Um, it was it was it was pandemonium for a while. We we never seen so many people that came to our facilities and they took everything because there was fear. And the grocery stores, when you don't see any bread on the right. shelves or those um, supplies in the store, it's, it, it creates And then what are you fear. seeing now? Are, 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 is there still as much as a need or not? Or can you give me a sense? Uh, let me just say, I, there are concerns in my state uh, around f food nutrition now. Um, and, and we're seeing high need for it. Uh, and I'm just curious what you're seeing. I think there's hearing. always going to be a need. Yeah. There's mm -hmm. people that have worked all their lives that um, are on a fixed income. Their Social Security amounts are set. They rely on the feeding programs to, to get those nutritional mm -hmm. um, supplements from, from our feeding programs. And they can't go back to work. They, they may be handicapped or have some health issues. So they're, not, they're living off of what they have. Thank you. So I think that's always going to be there. Thank you. Senator Mullen. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for being here. I uh, apologize about sliding in late, but I guess that's what we do here. Uh, five committee hearings in one day is ridiculous. Uh, Mr. Kissy, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate it. Um, I'd like to visit with you a little bit about uh, the beef operation. Obviously, it's something that's near and dear to my heart and something that our tribes are trying to do good in uh, providing a service for our state and for the surrounding areas. Um, I, I, uh, <clears throat> I know most of Oklahoma operations have gone through the process of obtaining a USA, uh, USDA stamp. Can you kind of explain that process, how hard it was for, um, for you guys to go through it? Sure. Um, thank you, Senator Mullen, and to the committee for, for having us here today. Um, as, as the Senator mentioned, um, I work from the Scobie Creek Nation, and we have a 25,000-square-foot USDA-inspected um, meat processing facility. Um, that was largely brought about due to the pandemic. And to, to speak to your question a little bit, um, we placed it intentionally in the middle of a food desert um, as designated by the USDA, which means um, they're either low access or low income, um, or in a lot of cases both, as our, as our county is there in Okmulgee County. Um, and so uh, a lot of times a switchover between FDIPR and SNAP is, is cumbersome. Um, our facility does accept SNAP benefits. Um, but there's a lot of issues there with the, with the changeover. So if a, if a tribal citizen decides that they want to switch from Fidipper to now access that fresh food that's at our meat market, um, it takes weeks for that change to occur. Um, and, and to speak more directly to the Senator Mullen's question, it was very cumbersome. Um, it, it was cumbersome to get that USDA inspection. There's a lot that goes into that. Um, even for an individual entity or a commercial entity, um, there's HACCP plans that have to be developed, uh, hazard analysis, analysis, critical control points, so you have to note um, all of the safety measures that you're um, putting into place to make sure that that's a safe and wholesome food product. Um, in many cases, that requires the help of a consultant. There's not a lot of resources out there available to just um, your average producer that wants to, to get into meat processing. Um, you have to have a food safety and biosecurity plan. Um, these are all steps that, are, that can be pretty cumbersome and pretty overwhelming for folks, um, as well as your sanitation SSOPs. 
uh, which outline the sanitation measures that are taken. So um, as the senator mentioned, we've been pretty fortunate in eastern Oklahoma. Um, we have four tribally owned meat processing facilities now um, in eastern Oklahoma, Muscogee Creek Nation, Cherokee Nation, Osage Nation, and the Quapaw Nation. Um, and all of us have been able to get the level of inspection that we, that we prefer. However, that's not the case um, all the way throughout Indian Country. Um, there are a lot, of, a lot of situations where a federal inspector um, is unattainable for a variety of reasons. There are places where um, maybe it's a remote area where, where nobody would prefer to work, aside from people who are in that community. Um, that's a problem. There are facilities who have to share inspectors, which um, you know, leads to a host of problems. You can't really plan your volume. Um, you, have to, you have to have a USDA inspector on site to harvest or process inspected product. Um, and so if you have to share an inspector with two or three or four facilities in the area, um, it, it's very inefficient. Um, you have to kind of plan your days around all the other plants' days. And if you're a new operation, you know, you, you kind of slide in there at the bottom and you take what you can get. Um, so there, there are a lot of problems there. It really creates a bottleneck, especially in our rural communities, for um, the inspection process. How, how far behind are you guys in processing? How many days out? And I say that because we, we make dates. Um, during the pandemic, we were making dates on our ranch a year mm -hmm. plus out for, for, to, get, uh, to get our cattle processed. Uh, where are you at today? It's a great question. So we're, we're booked out all the way through the end of the fall, um, September, October. Um, and we, we regularly get customers booking um, a year and a half, two years in advance so that they can kind of secure that slot. So would it, are you capable to contract with uh, USDA to perform your own inspections if we were to put language in, in the farm bill to allow you to do so? Yeah, I think that's a great opportunity for tribes. Um, I think that 638 is proven effective um, in, in a lot of other programs. One of them that I will, I will kind of touch on is uh, the Realty Trust Services Office at the Muscogee Creek Nation is, is sort of a hallmark for those programs, um, and, and they run that office really well. They're able to meet. They're very agile. They, they administer that program very well, um, and it's, it's kind of a model, and it shows that 638 does work, um, that tribes can administer those programs. Um, in a lot of cases, tribal governments are very sophisticated, um, and they're able to, to carry out those programs with no problem. So that was something that I would be in full support of, and in my conversations with, um, with them throughout Indian Country. I'm also on the board of directors for the Intertribal Ag Council, and so I get to have these conversations pretty regularly, and one of the asks that we have is an expansion of, of 638 authority throughout all USDA programs, um, which would include FSIS, and even to go as far as to maybe have um, a self-governance office within USDA, um, not necessarily to help tribes, but to help with the federal agency as it sort of navigates that. It's a tricky process. Um, there's a lot of, of um, uncertainty, even on the agency side, of what can and can't be compacted and what functions tribes um, do have the authority to oversee. So I think if there was a touch point there within the agency for uh, USDA staff and programs to go to and, and understand the ins and outs of self-governance, that would go a long way in, in affecting that change. Thank you. Uh, we have a couple of the, uh, our guests who would like to respond to Senator Mullen's uh, question. Great, absolutely. Uh, 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 Ms. Lev Levy, then Ms. Scott, then Ms. Duarte, and because it's three of you, if we could uh, keep it as brief as possible. Because well, we might as well throw in Langford, too. On it, so. Sorry? Oh, and Mr. Langford. Okay, so we have four. So uh, uh, Levy, Scott, Duarte, and then Langford. Okay. Goodness, Chief, how uh, um, the... Uh, as the gentleman was just sharing, uh, navigating the compliance with uh, some of the HACCP plans and food processing is, is a significant burden. Um, it's also uh, here in Alaska uh, and in Southeast, the majority of food is really flown in or barged up and navigating a supply chain that, uh, that is dependent on those sources has, uh, has, was an unbelievable burden during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. 
part of how Clinkett and Haida has been navigating that is uh, building the uh, building greenhouses where uh, these greenhouses need to be able to withstand up to 100 mile an hour winds and 75 pounds per square foot of snow uh, in order to try and ensure that there's local access to fresh fruits and vegetables that are not just fresh fruits and vegetables, but also uh, local uh, traditional foods like Clinkett potatoes. Um, and so expanding the 638 contracting authority um, uh, would be a huge, uh, a huge relief in being able to uh, navigate and ensure that traditional foods um, and access are able to be uh, are able to be provided to tribal citizens in this way. Uh, it's uh, it's tribes who have the commitment to be navigating navigating the challenges of a greenhouse that can withstand those uh, those burdens. Uh, tribes have these. Uh, these commitments to their people and their communities. And so, Clinton uh, Haida would really speak in favor of that. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ms. Scott. Thank you. I just want to reiterate that one of the best ways for tribes to ensure not only access to programs, but service to their community members is um, for them to be able to be afforded flexibility around the terms in which they can present these programs to their community members. And I think it's it really is um, a key effort that USDA can consider in how we explore the ways that 638 and the expansion of 638 can allow for us to better serve our community members out here in the communities that are impacted by very simple supply chain disruptions because we're at the very end of that supply chain. Um, I, so I, I really appreciate all Scott. the comments that are being shared. I I'm not sure I know what you mean. You said flexibility in the way these programs are presented. What, what would that look like? And what is this inflexibility that we're trying to get to or get uh, uh, to solve? Yeah, I, I think specifically what I'm trying to get at is when programs um, are utilizing 638 authority for the tribes to determine what flexibilities need to be extended, that's when we can really address um, a meaningful variety and array of community specific issues that may be faced, whether that is need for indigenous foods to be uh, represented in the FDIPA program, or whether that is timeliness in which the food access needs to be addressed and beyond. Thank you. Let me add to that too, Chairman. It's the flexibility too, because the makeup of let's say Alaska uh, versus Muscogee Creek Nation, um, where Alaska may be serving their communities uh, and, and just indigenous people as a whole, and Muscogee Creek Nation, it's serving the community as a whole because it's, it's, it's an open reservation where everybody lives among each other. And so they're processing, they could be processing for our local restaurants, much less the individual and the tribes, tribal members themselves. And so we need that flexibility to move forward. Thank you. Ms. Duarte. Yes, thank you. Uh, similar to Ms. Levy, and this Senator Schatz knows this, but this is for the rest of the community members. Did you know that for any pork or beef product, our, cat, our cattle and our, 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 our pork needs to be shipped off offshore to, to the continental U.S. to be processed and then brought back. So the cost of that lies on the producer. So the processing. So that, I, we have two, uh, I have two recommendations I want to put forward. The first is target infrastructure investment to support a robust supply chain. So specifically, we need um, 
dedicated set aside of USDA funds for activities such as production, processing, milling, warehousing, storage, value add development and distribution. Uh, the second recommendation uh, that we would like, I would like to offer on behalf of Native Hawaiians is to, in the uh, topic of inter-island shipping. There's a lot of costs, you know, there are, there are eight major islands. We, you know, there, there can be more that can be done around there. To provide an additional amount of funding specifically to indigenous farmers and ranchers as an add-on to the reimbursement transportation cost payment program for geographically disadvantaged farmers and ranchers. Thank you very much. I think Senator Cortez Masto might argue there are nine major islands, but that's a separate <laughs> conversation. <laughs> uh, uh, Mr. Langford. Thank you. Um, as we talk about 638 um, and the food distribution, and especially um, food processing, um, in our state, uh, Senator Tester has done a great job of champion um, local food processing. Um, they have a co-op. Um, just started in Haver, which is right near our reservation. Um, he worked through the Farmers Union to get that going. I think that's a great model. Um, again, Tester, Tester knows that, right? He, he, he's been there. He, he lives down Highway 2 from me. Um, but one thing I see is we, on our reservation, we raise bison. Um, and in order for us to do a, a handling facility and a kill facility, the costs are so prohibitive because our product is so small. Um, what I would encourage is, is to look at how we can engage in these processes on a smaller scale. A lot of our native-grown, native-owned, indigenous foods, food sources are smaller scale. We need to, to either look at grants are extremely low interest loans to get these things off the ground. Um, again, I said on our egg board for our economic development arm, we, we, we procured a feasibility study and we couldn't find that it was feasible because we don't process enough. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a big thing. And then when we look at um, training our own, we talked about inspectors. We have a great access on all of our reservations. It's called our, it's our, our tribal colleges. You know, when we look at that, I'd like to you guys to look at the, as well as the federal recognized tribal extension program, the FRTEP. Um, currently, it's funded at three million. Um, we'd like to look at that to push it to ten, so we can get some research out there, so we can get our own natives inspecting our own meat. I think that's that's very important. Uh, Mr. Cowboy has a comment, and then we'll turn to the vice chair, and then to Senator Lujan. Well, thank you, um, senators, and also the vice chair and um, Senate. Um, I'm Vincent Cowboy, of course. Um, I'm the sales and marketing manager of NAPI, um, an enterprise of the Navajo Nation here in New Mexico. Um, our farmland is um, 110,000 acres. We grow various crops. Um, I think with the past speakers that they pointed out, that USD inspector, I think that was some of our challenge, too, as an enterprise as well where for the past six years, we didn't have a USD inspector from New Mexico for us to inspect our products to go export or even domestically. So again, um, expanding that funding or grant to our own tribes for them to be educated so they can actually inspect, again, just like they mentioned, smaller crops that we have, our native foods, 
a lot of these other USD inspectors now don't know our small crops and how to inspect them. So it's harder. And then the other one was also expanding on the processing and also the distribution. Like rather than sending a full truck, some of our native sisters and brothers have just small boxes and a few pallets to ship, but the cost is still there and it's added back onto the producers. And to have some grant or some program to help those um, Indian tribes, just like me hearing a lot of these other tribes here where we can have that relationship from tribe to tribe, like me sending me some of my native food products up to Nevada, same thing to Alaska and coming back rather than having that freight and costs and then all those inspections added on as well as fees. So that's where I'm coming on to expand the funding or grant on the USDA inspectors to educate our own tribes as well. I just wanted to add it. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, I wanted to jump in here because this is a this is a conversation that I had hoped we would be able to have in the context of the Farm Bill. Um, uh, we are looking to 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 do more uh, with our tribes when it comes to uh, reindeer um, as uh, as a as a small economic uh, development opportunity, but really small. So to your point, Mr. Langford and to uh, Mr. Cowboy's comments there, how we, how we can focus this, not necessarily on the bigger productions, because I'm, I'm, I'm hearing my friend and colleague here uh, share with me some of the realities of big processors and how you deal with the waste aspect of it. Um, but I mean, we're, we are literally talking about a, a facility, small-scale facility that could be put on barge um, to go from one islanded community to the coastline um, because investing in this kind of, of infrastructure and locating it then and having to move all that, you lose all of your, your economies of scale. But this issue of how through 638 compacting, how we can do more with USDA, with training USDA, training individuals within the tribes to be those inspectors seems to me to be an opportunity here for us if we're if we're doing this right. Um, my colleague from New Mexico hasn't gotten to speak yet, so I'll defer. I'm sorry. Don't apologize. This is great, Senator Lujan. Oh, thank you, Chair. I, I think I continue to defer to our Vice Chair. I I agree wholeheartedly with this conversation and appreciate what Senator Mullins put on the table with his question and clearly an interest in all of our states. Um, the need is there. And uh, Vice Chair, I appreciate your recognition and your leadership from the perspective that it, we need to do this for larger operations and for someone who maybe has a few head um, to help large and small. And as I shared with Senator Mullins, this is needed across America. What's happening right now is not working and it's not sustainable. And um, I, I would go on to say, as Senator Mullins advocated for home, is that there's not a restriction in this space as well, Mr. Chairman, and that as we look to uh, find more support for tribes across America, and I'm thinking of New Mexico, that they're, they're able to process just like anyone else. And while we, we work to make sure that we're able to make those investments and look at strengthening this area, that it's something that will open up more opportunity. I mean, I know in New Mexico, everyone's having to ship stuff out. And they're, they're having to trailer it, but 
wait for it to get back. And the folks that have a few head of cattle, I mean, they're just, it's hard to, it's hard to even get by for some of those families, especially when we're getting a little older. Um, but nonetheless, I, I appreciate this. And I, I don't know if there's anything else that our vice chair would want to add there. Yeah. Um, I, I want to recognize someone who you already have heard from, and that's Mr. Cowboy, um, uh, who's a, a leader back in New Mexico, but um, has shed light on so many um, areas that we can be more supportive of the Navajo agricultural products industry and the work that he's done um, in his current capacity, but also as the CEOO in a previous life um, over at NAPI and the work that they're doing there under um, Navajo brand as well, Navajo pride brand, but creating more markets and opportunity. And one of the questions I have, Mr. Cowboy, uh, for you is exactly in that space with the work that you've done and, and, and what you've been leading it with initiatives is how can the next farm bill support native producers as they look to expand both domestic and international opportunities for products? Thank you for that question. Um, again, I think we go back to that, um, expanding the opportunity for our own tribes to have an in-house inspector. That was one of the biggest challenges for export for us, for NAPI, was inspector. Again, having no inspector for six years, we pretty much pawned that on to our customers. And at this point, I mean, times have changed where cost is really going up. And now, if I work together with tribe to tribe, just don't want to pawn that off to them for them to have that cost added to them. Um, that was something. Then the other one was also educating our tribes, learning them about the USDA inspection, also learning about these new crops that we have. A lot of these are native crops that a lot of the outside world don't see. Some of our native tea that we have, sumac berries. I know there's some some of the areas, blue cornmeal. Some of those are expanding in some of these smaller farms. Some of these, even these farms that haven't existed for a while, are coming back to life. So we have smaller brothers and sister farmers that are growing and starting to be part of the market. And that's on the export. For us, we have exported our dry beans down into Mexico still. We still have the challenges with um, USDA inspector. Of course, same thing with our alfalfa going abroad. And then now me working with New Mex uh, Mexico government to try to get in some blue corn down there as well. So the biggest holdup for me um, for NAPI itself is the USDA inspection to having that flexibility and also them educating on our native foods as well. For the domestic part, um, again, we keep hearing about this farm to fork programs across the nation and where food banks and also the food hubs and also the farmers market are really pushing towards that freshness of food and healthy. But again, we still have roadblocks there as well. Even in our own backyards, there's some schools and some home care that can't even get our products, even though they're less than a mile away from us. They have to be shipped out of here, going to a distribution center and returning. So that freshness is not there no more. So that's one thing that's hurting us. If we can get that inspector and we have that inspected here on the farm, with the nation, we can work directly with our customers and working with the education system and also our health care and just going direct. And of course, again, working from tribe to tribe, I think that one has really 
expanded during the pandemic as a lot of um, buyers return back to tr traditional values and traditional foods or medicine. I heard that in this um, speech earlier about medicine. Yes, food is medicine. And also we need to return back to that as well. And as we start to expand our native foods, because again, our brothers and sisters of um, Canada, also Mexico and also here in the United States, we're growing and our farmlands are continuing to grow and grow. We started off as feet, now we're going into acres and we're gonna be part of this market um, going forward from here on out. So thank you. Is there anyone here that would disagree that opening up opportunities to more of these markets is something we should be focusing on as well? Schlenkford? Yeah, I think, you know, under Section 3 of the trade, the market access program, um, I think we need to ensure that that funding stays the same or increases. One of the things I think should be it also ask is that we have tribal producers be part of those trade missions. Yeah. That's what we need. So that's the ask, is that we keep that market access program available and funded and that we include natives in the, in the trade missions. Awesome. And when we talk about... One other thing about being sovereign, that's, that's key to being sovereign, is that we can expand and reach out for ourselves. And then we can, when we're looking at these inspectors, the other part of being sovereign is that we're using our own people to inspect. I think that's crucial. Uh, yes, thank you, Senator. I, I would agree, and I, I just want to kind of point out something that's maybe missing a little bit from this conversation, is that um, I know all of the facilities in eastern Oklahoma, ours included, is open to the public. Um, and on any given day, 70% of our customers in the retail space um, do not identify as a tribal citizen. So you're not just investing in tribal communities with these initiatives. You're, you're investing in the surrounding community. As, again, we, we planted our retail facility on purpose in the middle of a food desert, providing access to low-income and low-access families, native and non-native. And so that's, that's a really important data point that I wanted to bring up. And I also think that... Um, as we kind of talked about, tribes are uniquely situated because of our ability to educate our workforce. Um, that's something that we've really been talking a lot about in our area, um, is the need for some workforce development. Um, and as Mr. Lankford brought up, the FERTEP program is a great place to do that. The Muscogee Nation also has um, a 90, 94 land grant tribal college there in town. We have the ability to educate our people. We have the ability to educate folks who want to come back and work in those communities where it may be tough to get an inspector because if they're not from the area, um, maybe it's an undesirable place for them to live. But through scholarship programs, education programs, and our land-grant institutions, we're able to educate that workforce, um, get those folks there trained to come and work in our facilities as inspectors or as, or as labor. Um, as all of you probably know, there's sort of a dearth of that whole animal nose-to-tail butcher. Um, that skill set doesn't exist currently. Um, and so we're all kind of robbing labor from each other, which doesn't help anyone. Those four plants in eastern Oklahoma, um, we do our best not to, not to poach labor from each other, but that's just an area that, that's very thin um, because it's, it's been so specialized and mechanized and on an assembly line type approach that you don't have somebody who knows and who has the, either the education as a meat scientist to understand value-add processes and water activity and things like that. That's a need on one hand, the education, but also um, the skilled labor force that can take that animal um, that whole animal that walks into the facility and cut it up into retail cuts that a family can use. So I would advocate for um, some extended resources there in the workforce development aspect as well. I appreciate that, Mr. Chair. If I may ask, Ms. Is it President Trottier? Um, President, with all the work that you've been doing and your understanding in this space, what are your thoughts about the inclusion of more traditional and tribally produced foods in the uh, FDPIR, I think it's called FDIPR? Uh, program. What, what are your thoughts with that and making the 638 program um, to allow more tribal nations to participate and improve uh, 
food access? Well, we've had great success with the eight tribes that we've um, had in the, the first round of funding. Um, COVID kind of prevented a few tribes from applying because they were trying to feed families. Um, I think the interest has peaked, and um, I think tribes are really interested in being able to source their own food and feed their own food to their communities. It's, it's kind of a no-brainer. Um, you can uh, eliminate, eliminate the need for transportation to and from and back to the tribes where you can have a locally sourced product delivered right to your door. So I think the need is, um, the need is there. It also it creates economic resources for tribes that if, this is, if they continue with this and we have a steady stream of funding, I think you'll get more interest and, and um, we'll have a healthier product. I appreciate that. And within these programs, um, Families who qualify on the food program side, they can purchase salt and sugar, right? That's, that's an allowable expenditure if there's a food program that families are participating in? Under the SNAP program? Yes. Again, but not under FDPIR. So that, one of the points I want to make here is not necessarily for salt and sugar, Mr. Chairman, but on herbs, and namely traditional herbs, is when we're talking about food that you want to eat or that's culturally appropriate, that kind of restriction doesn't make sense to me, especially if you can buy salt and sugar. Um, but there's other more appropriate herbs that, um, well, you know where I'm going with this. I just hope that this is something that we can look at, and it's a small change, but I think it's a change that will make a big difference. And again, that represents, um, uh, that, that, ref that uh, um, more appropriately respects uh, sovereignty. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Smith. Um, thank you so much. Um, so I wanted to just let my colleagues know that uh, a couple of the issues that we've been talking about, uh, we've been working on at the, at the Ag Committee level, I've been working on legislation to address some of this, particularly the need um, mentioned the, um, uh, to allow um, assist tribes in becoming USDA certified um, for food, and food safety inspection service. So we have, like, we're drafting language on that right now. Um, also on figuring out what more we can do to assist tribes um, with technical assistance or grants to um, do some of the work that they need to do. For example, it can be prohibitively expensive to have somebody come in, sometimes traveling, like, you know, days in order to get to the location they need to get to um, in order to do the certification, trying to assist with some of those costs as well. So. Um, the Native Farm Bill Coalition has been incredibly helpful as we've been working on this language, and I just wanted to mention that. would love to work with all of you on that if you're interested. I also want to mention that um, the because um, Senator um, Lujan has been such a strong um, advocate for this, um, looking at ways that we could expand 368 authority. We're working on le language that would do this to expand 368 authority to all of uh, the FDIPR programs so that tribes can plan and conduct and administer them, including, including uh, native food. And so, again, I just would love to work with all of you on this. I think there's just so much opportunity. Um, I want to just mention one other thing because um, our colleagues here were bringing this up, which is ensuring that the USDA, when it is running trade missions or doing uh, food promotion activities for building overseas markets, that it is truly including uh, tribes and native producers in that work. And, you know, in the 2018 Farm Bill, we um, directed the USDA 
to support greater inclusion. And unfortunately, that hasn't really happened. And so we're continuing to work on this. There's, you know, like all things, it's always complicated. Um, but we think that there's some additional things that we can do, because you're absolutely right. If you're not able to participate in, um, in trade promotion activities, then you're missing opportunities to build a, a big market. And um, so I wanted to just mention that. One other thing I think is important is that it's in, <laughs> if we are going to be creating pathways to market um, overseas native food, it's important that it is native food. <laughs> and this is a big issue in Minnesota where we're quite concerned about monoman wild rice and how it is being uh, developed in other places. It's cultivated rice. It is not the same thing. And we want to make sure that we're providing protections for um, native food as we're doing that um, marketing. Those are a couple, if anybody wants to comment on any of that, I'd be love to hear your thoughts. Uh, sure. Mr. Lankford and I had a conversation about this, this very thing in the hallway. And, um, you know, the old, the old terminology was, was the country of origin labeling and how kind of problematic that was, that it was, that it was mandatory and it led to maybe some retaliatory tariffs and things like that. And I know the new push is, is um, that it's voluntary. And so maybe we can avoid some of those things. But I think it's, it's very important when you start talking about the traceability aspect of that. Um, and I know Avis just put out a new rule, um, you know, particularly for us dealing with the livestock side. And that's, um, you know, something we've been looking heavily at. But I think it's important to note that if something says that it's native produced, native grown, native owned, that we make sure that, that, that it is. And so I think um, wh while we're able to keep those things uh, um, voluntary to, to you know, avoid some of the other issues that would complicate that matter some, I think it's vitally important that we make sure that we have um, not only the ability to ensure that those are native grown, native produced, and authentic products, um, but also the funding that would go with that to um, implement those programs. Because for example, with livestock um, and the traceability stuff, the requirement of an RFID tag that's going to rest almost entirely on, the cost of that's going to rest almost entirely on the cow-calf producer. While the end user, the retail, the, the processing and the packing house is going to see the, the benefits of that because in the end, they're the ones that are going to be able to provide that data to the consumer and collect the, the value add there. Um, and so meanwhile, the cow-calf guys having to keep track of all these records and wonder who has access to them, um, you know, bear the expense of the tag and all the work that goes into, you know, putting the tag on and reading the data, all that cost is borne up front, and all the, all the benefit of that is seen on the back end of that. So I think it's very important that we um, ensure the producers that are going to be in charge of the bulk of that data collection and verification see the benefit of that end result. Thank you. Go ahead. You first. So, uh, again, uh, Senator Tester from our state, um, he's an organic farmer, as am I. You know, and, and part of that organic certification is part of the story, right? Is part that we can convey to the people buying it, where it comes from, that it is safe, and that you can trace it back to where it came from. And I think as we look towards branding stuff as native owned, native produced, that is another way for us to diversify. Right. We really need to be able to diversify and bring in extra streams of revenue so we can be compensated for the extra that goes into this. So I think the labeling is something that we would definitely help us out in native country. May I, Senator, as well? I absolutely agree with, with what my colleagues have just um, stated. Um, and, you know, the Farm Bill makes me really excited about the opportunities because it's so, there's so much opportunity. It's not just about agricultural production, right? It's about nutrition. It's about forestry and conservation. And so kind of just to circle back to a native idea that transcends all native peoples, 
um, in, in the 50 states is the recognition uh, of our ancestral systems and our lands being vital to the perpetuation and advancement of our, of our knowledge systems, right? Why is that important? Because today we know that we need traditional, um, tr traditional ecological knowledge to help solve for some of the major climate issues that we're facing, right? Um, so to have uh, the ability to um, research the true cost accounting, I want to advocate for true cost accounting methodologies to really understand and evaluate the conservation benefits, the ecosystem services that native approaches of conservation brings to, to this entire arena. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I, I've been thinking about what, what we talked about earlier today, but also more generally, the Farm Bill, the BIA, the USDA, and it becomes a question of, are we going to continue the legacy of the United States government's policy of assimilation, right? And an assumption that goes into every interaction with Native people, particularly on in Indian country, but in, in Hawaii and elsewhere, um, that the knowledge is in the possession of the federal government, right? And that you have to ask permission at every step of the way, even if it's your land in trust, right? Uh, even if it's your knowledge that has been ignored, right? That even though you can manage something better than the federal government has, uh, that still they're the possessors, not just of power, but of knowledge. And I think what, one of the things we want to change over time is just to open up a little aperture here to say these are not Native people with their handouts, please help us. But we actually already know what we're doing, and would you let us unleash our creativity, our knowledge, our collective wisdom, and our work ethic. And I think that obviously this has to manifest itself in legislative text, but I think one of the most important aspects of the Farm Bill is who, who gets to decide what happens next, right? And one of the basic principles of sovereignty and self-determination is that it's your land. And I just think that's an important principle that is the bedrock of whatever we propose to the Agriculture Committee. Mr. Langford. So, Chairman, on that, on that breath, um, under Title VIII, under forestry, um, you know, I propose that we insert language in there that, that acknowledges our sacred places. I think underneath of that title, we can insert language where we talk about our sacred places that are not only on our own reservations, but again, we were coast to coast. We have sacred places all throughout the nation. You know, and I would ask that there be a cooperative management agreement for federal forests that are adjacent to reservations. That's the ask. The other ask is that as we try to preserve our heritage, that one of the things, and we talk about conservation and we talk about, we talk about equip and we talk about CSP. When we go to engage these on our own reservations, we have a tribal historic preservation office. You know, um, the gentleman on, on my reservation, Michael Blackwolf, he takes great pride in what he does. And his, his jurisdiction doesn't end at our reservation. It extends beyond that. But when we even try to do business on our own reservation, what I would like to ask in this farm bill is that there's a line item, a payment schedule for him to do his job on our reservation. Right now, when I go as a producer to do my equip, I'm having to pay him or 
my tribe is having to waive that fee for him. That's the ask, is when we look at this cultural, how do we protect it? How do we push that to say, we want to be co-managers of what's out there that was historically ours? That's the ask. Mr. Chairman, I'm going to ask um, Maddie uh, Levy, to, Levy to speak to this issue of, of tribal co-management, because this has been something where, again, you've got agencies that um, are saying, maybe saying the right thing, but in terms of of a practice, because right now USDA is claiming that they've got the authority, the, the authority already exists for the tribes um, in management of, of forestry lands through cooperative agreements or, or alternative funding uh, agreements. But, but we're finding out, and again, I had a chance to, to speak with the Chief of the Forest Service this morning about just exactly this. It's not necessarily right in line with supporting the tribal sovereignty and the self-determination because you have, um, you have limitations on, on, I guess, nexus. The tribal land has to be immediately adjacent to, uh, to the Forest Service land. So I, I, I know that in... Um, in, in the Tongass, uh, Central Council is, is trying to put together a, uh, a co-management um, arrangement with regards to a visitor center at probably the most significant um, glacier there in, in Southeast at the Mendenhall. Um, there's, no, there's no clinket culture or history that's being shared at this very significant um, visitor facility. And, and I don't know, Matt, uh, Ms. Levy, if you want to speak to this issue of co-management and how it says the right thing in statute, but we're not necessarily able to implement it. Thank you, Senator Markowski. I would love to. Uh, the, uh, you're, you're really uh, spot on that the Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Center is a really significant place in southeast Alaska. And right now, if you, uh, if you were to go uh, attend and, and walk through, you would see very little uh, of Clinket uh, and Haida people. Um, and in fact, President Peterson has a really unfortunate, uh, unfortunate story where um, when uh, staff were asked about that, uh, they, were, uh, they, told, they told the visitors that, well, the Clinket the people really didn't have anything to do with the glacier. And that's... It's really inaccurate. Um, there are so many stories um, in, uh, of clans with traversing glaciers, with um, there's a lot of cultural connection there and a, and a story to be told. Uh, and, uh, and you're right, Clinket and Haida has been pursuing co-management of this space. The promise of, uh, of co-management and co-stewardship has been very meaningful to the tribe. Um, and while it is uh, uh, the, the promise is a step in the right direction. There are several challenges, um, and it is that the existing authority is limited in scope. Um, uh, the requirement to be adjacent to tr tribal trust lands is really prohibitive for Alaska. Clinket uh, and Haida is very, uh, very pleased and happy to have received uh, the second fee-to-trust application that has been granted in Alaska in uh, just back in November of last year, uh, but that, uh, that proximity between the Mendenhall Glacier Visitor Center 
and the Juno Indian Village uh, all the way downtown is is not there. Um, and so expanding the 638 authority uh, to <clears throat> uh, for the Forest Service um, outside of the Tribal Forest Protection Act uh, would really allow for the inclusion of activities and uh, the management of, of the visitor center and other places that are that are so important because as uh, as the other folks have been testifying here, these lands are uh, indigenous lands. There is a story to be told. Um, uh, and more importantly, there is active management to be done based on the traditional knowledge um, that uh, that our communities have and that our communities are are ready to be utilizing, uh, but the barriers uh, the barriers are need to be addressed. I'm going to call on uh, uh, Senator Lujan and then Senator Smith, and we'll make some concluding remarks. And uh, Senator Lujan. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Ms. Scott, are you still with us virtually? Yes. Um, my, one question I have for you that came up, came to me and came to my attention with a recent conversation with um, a governor of uh, a Pueblo in New Mexico was surrounding contract support costs for tribes. And my question to you with your understanding is, uh, it's, what I was told is that USDA does not provide contract support costs for tribes when they administer self-governance programs. Is that your understanding? I would have to do a little bit of investigation to verify, but that sounds relatively on point with my understanding. Do you have thoughts regarding support for contract support costs or, or anyone here um, as the conversation furthers with um, 638 initiatives, but especially in the area of contract support costs? And the reason here is, well, there was a, a, a federal disaster within lands and the tribe is taken full responsibility with administering the program 638, there's no support on the contract side, uh, right? And I'm seeing a lot of yeses around the room. But that seems like a missed opportunity to encourage that support and that activity um, for, for that management. And I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Ms. Scott, that you might be able to add to the conversation about the inclusion of that in the Farm Bill? Yeah, I think that we could really reflect on the fact that the historical under service and lack of access to USDA programs has helped to perpetuate that void of wealth yeah. in many of these communities. And any chance that we can utilize the administering of these programs by the tribes themselves as a vehicle for enhancing uh, increased access to programming or even reducing the cost share that is incurred by the tribes in accessing programming, I think we can really start to advance our communities towards more parity in uh, addressing that wealth gap that exists. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairman. I, I want to thank all of the panelists. I want to thank the staff and also the guests of the panelists and the members. This was one of the most constructive uh, 90 minutes that, that we've spent together as a committee. Uh, we've got some homework now, all of us, which is to take all these wonderful ideas. And I know most of you already have this stuff pretty well formulated, but we still have a job of collating, curating, prioritizing, and then coming together as a sort of political unit to make sure that as we move forward with a farm bill, and we should, uh, that Native communities are represented uh, for the opportunity in front of us. Um, sure, there are needs, um, but I want us to think of this as 
you know, uh, Mahina and, and her guests and I were talking about the kind of resurgence in Native Hawaiian farming. And I think this is a pure observation because I, I scarcely have planted anything in my life. Um, uh, but it's fun now. There's a hope to it. There's a joy to it. And so although it is important to uh, identify needs, although it is important to identify challenges, I think what is going to get us over the hump and into the future is all of the opportunity and all of the talent uh, in this room and across the country. So thank you very much. Uh, this roundtable is adjourned. <laughs>